Welcome back to the Military Museums podcast. I'm your host, Greg Wilson, and with me today uh, is Captain Phil Webster, joining the two-time club. Mm -hmm. Glad to be here, Greg. Fantastic. Glad to have you. And uh, we're here to talk today about something very, very specific. I'm frankly very happy that we were able to actually sit down and have this conversation before the anniversary date came up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're here to talk about the Battle of Marai Wood, yes, specifically. Indeed. As threatened last time. Last As, time yes. <laughs> yes, we made that threat, and we are making good on it, which, is, awesome. which is fantastic. Uh, so... Phil, this is one of the uh, this is one of the battles that is very much uh, highlighted in the Strathcona exhibit. It's one of the last great cavalry charges. Yes, indeed, one, uh, of, the, one of the last great cavalry charges of the of the First World War. Uh, a lot of the time, there's sort of a misnomer with it. People say it's one of the last great cavalry charges in history. When you know, realistically speaking, there were even cavalry charges later in the First World War that were, you know, just as, let's say, involving just as many men. Right. Uh, Second World War, same thing. Um, Polish, Russians. Yeah. Uh, you hear about it on the Eastern Front. Exactly. And, you know, a funny, funny fact, you know, a lot of people sort of look and say, well, why would you have horses? Well, I mean, it's easier to feed horses than it is to try to get gas across mountains and stuff like that, right? So... Uh, you know, the Germans especially used uh, a lot of horses uh, to transport things and that kind of thing. So, you know, the Russian Cossacks and, and Polish Lancers and stuff like that, though, um, you always get that uh, that sort of myth mythological uh, Polish Lancers charging German tanks to sort of paraphrase Corp Lund there for a second. But uh, not really something that uh, that happened. You didn't have Polish Lancers thinking that they were going to take out German tanks yeah. by charging them with, with lances. That, was, that wasn't a thing. Um, uh, Polish Lancers actually were quite effective against things like uh, communications and transport. Um, infantry attacking behind the lines and that kind of stuff, you know, cavalry, um, as we saw in the First World War and, and um, when the First World War got mobile again, actually is quite effective when you can hit something that isn't very fast. You know, after the Second World War, cavalry is obsolete at this point because you have cars and trucks and motorcycles and things like that that can move as fast and flank as fast and tanks were quite a bit better at the end of the war than they were at the beginning of the war. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the cavalry has been something that has existed in, um, in the military through mo most of the 20th century. So, And your regiment, the Lord Strathcona's Horse, clearly has a long relationship with the mounted tradition. Oh, indeed, yes. And we see that beginning to phase out, even at the end of the First World War. So what are the circumstances that lead to this cavalry charge. Okay, well, basically, um, when my regiment was first raised, uh, as I believe we talked about briefly last time, we were um, mounted rifles rather than a, a straight cavalry regiment. Mm -hmm. um, cavalry existed at the time in many different forms, dragoons and hussars and lancers and etc. But we were uh, mounted uh, infantry, which is to say we would get on the back of a horse, we would ride to where the fight had to be, and we would get off the horse and fight uh, on the ground, then get up and, and ride around again, which seems a lot more civilized than marching everywhere. But uh, <laughs> don't tell Nate I said that. Um, For those of you wondering, Nate is in charge of the PPCLI gallery. <laughs> Uh, though uh, he's he's uh, known for jumping out of perfectly good planes, so you know, ah. who am I to say? 
Um, but um, of course, uh, as we talked about last time, the uh, the Strathconas of the day were cowboys and well, cowboys and and rough gentlemen, let's say. So a lot of the time, they would be perfectly happy to run around and fire their guns from on the back of horses and stuff like that because you know they just cared about winning at that point. Uh, which isn't to say that they were a bunch of undisciplined uh, snobs, but the cavalry tradition was alive even when we were mounted rifles. Um, for anyone visiting the, the gallery, you, you'll see uh, in our front foyer, we actually have a king's color. Um, and king's colors, or colors, are typically only given to infantry regiments. Um, but we have a king's color because of that mounted rifle connection, and frankly because the king wanted to, us to have a color, and he got whatever he wanted. So uh, He's the king. Being infallible like that. Yes. Um, but anyway, so after we'd re-raised as a government regiment in, in the late, uh, late aughts, 19 aughts, um, we... Uh, we're cavalry, we're trained as cavalry, um, which includes war horses, the saber, uh, rifles, pistols, that kind of thing. But the saber was sort of the primary weapon uh, that the Strathconas would have been uh, training on, at least for the purposes of riding around on the back of a horse. Um, which is not, uh, again, a, you know, the... The idea that this was sort of uncivilized or it was a foolish, foolish idea, not, not really. I mean, uh, horses could still maneuver very quickly on the battlefield. The trucks at the time could not. Uh, people on the back of horses could not, uh, or sorry, on the back of their own feet could not move all that quickly. Um, so having a horse meant that you could get places very, very fast and you could deliver messages very, very fast. And it doesn't matter if you are uh, the bravest soldier in the world. If you see someone coming at you at 40, 50 kilometers an hour with a, you know, a three-foot razor blade in their hand, that's terrifying. Yes. Um, and you It's know, formidable. It's as a for formidable as a force yeah. and, a, and a valid way of attacking, um, as we'll see when we get to talking about more I would there. Um, this, the razor blade in question being the uh, the pattern 1908 or 1912 uh, British cavalry saber. Um, I have many examples of them in the in my gallery. They're one of my favorite things, one of my favorite artifacts. And uh, 1908 denoting one for a trooper or a non-commissioned member slash officer, and 1912 being the more ornate ones that were carried in for ceremonial roles or by officers. A lot of the time they'd be sort of private purchased so that they'd be more ornate because at the time we're talking about British imperial uh, military tradition being one where the officers were quite a bit you know, uh, higher in social rank or status, at least at the beginning of the war. And so, you know, they'd have better quality boots because they'd pay for them on their own, or they'd have a better quality trench coat because they bought it from Burberry, um, whereas the men had to do with what they, what they had. Um, uh, towards the end of the war, we find that uh, most of the officers who were, in very many cases, had been soldiers, because, um, you know, little known fact about the First World War, the casualty rates for officers were atrocious. Yes. Uh, especially in the British Empire. Uh, we're talking 25% casualty rate. Uh, the officers were expected to go first over the top, while the sergeants and the warrant officers would be at the back, essentially making, yeah, pushing pe people forward and making sure that the troops actually charged. So you'd have these very brave people jump over the top and get mowed down by machine guns almost immediately. 
um, for most of the trench warfare um, component of the First World War. Um, so you, towards the end, you find a lot of officers who are, you know, wouldn't have been in that aristocracy. Um, so they just cared about having an effective weapon. So you see them have 1908 pattern weapons as well. Pattern sabers, sorry. Um, saber itself is a, a very fine combination of um, artisanal, let's call it sword making, and modern techniques. Um, very, very sharp, very flexible blade, um, capable of taking a lot of damage, especially when you're impacting someone on the back of a horse. Um, essentially a small lance yeah. um, with a manipulatable grip, uh, including a thumb guard and, and, and that kind of thing, as well as a big uh, bell guard for deflecting blows and that sort of thing, keeping the hand safe while you're charging through the air. Um, is this the classic idea of a saber, where you're slashing from the horse, or is it a charging weapon? No, actually, it's it's um, there was a fundamental shift in terms of, of the idea of what a saber would do. Yeah. Um, you know, I've, my my commanding officer was just in here today, and we went through my my prize sword collection that we have here. I showed a dragoon. Uh, saber, and uh, this might interest you uh, on a personal level. Uh, this purported to be a dragoon saber that was from the heavy brigade at Balaclava. Um, very, very light, uh, very easy to manipulate. Big, huge slashing uh, blade on it. Uh, the slashing blade allows you to have more of a, of an edge that you could bring to bear against the enemy. Um, but it's f less versatile. Yeah. You know, a sharp edge and a pointy edge means you can attack with both sort of things. And especially if you take something like the, the 08 and 12 pattern sabers, um, you were able to manipulate the weapon in a, in a large number of ways and very precisely as well, um, owing to its weight and characteristics and that kind of thing. So very fine quality weapon. And, you know, sort of amusingly at the end of the, the time when the sword was a viable weapon on the battlefield. Um, you know, we didn't know it going into the war, but the age of cavalry had just about ended. And we didn't even know it when we left the war. Yeah. Um, you know, there was this question as to whether or not um, armies of the future would, would still use cavalry as a, as a primary means of, of, of attack. Um, because we had sort of gotten past the idea that trench warfare was going to be the norm from now on in. Um, you know, of course, we know that the trenches developed out of the fact that uh, the efficiency of killing machines was far outweighed the efficiency or the, the ability for people to defend against them. It wasn't until the tank came in that, you know, we suddenly had a way to advance through killing fields of machine guns, you know, and, and it's kind of the lessons that should have been learned in the Civil War, realistically speaking. You know, you see things like Petersburg and yeah. the big sieges there when, you know, people would go over the top and just get decimated by everyone, you know. Um, Pickett's Charge, another good example, Peach Orchard, the, all these different battles in the, uh, in the Civil War, the American Civil War, sort of foreshadowed the terror and the awful uh, combat that we'd see, you know, 50 years later. Yeah. Um, so anyway, we're sort of off topic at that point. Don't want to ramble for another hour here. Well, we can uh, <laughs> we can go back to to on topic because I think we've uh, discussed the uh, the s culture surrounding yes, yes, the sir. ideals of being a mounted regiment um, in the context of Marai Wood. Uh, so knowing that we are at the end of the age of cavalry, yep. um, Marai Wood 
in, I think, Canadian history kind of stands out. Uh, very much so. Um, you know, the regiment had spent the, most of the war in the trenches fighting as, as light infantry and had sort of been in a almost a stroke of genius, someone had decided to re-equip them as cavalry and train them in England and, and get them moving again in time for the Battle of the Somme and stuff like that. Um, and so, uh, you know, the, the my regiment wasn't a, one that dodged trench du duty or anything like that. They, we didn't avoid the war by any stretch of the imagination, but we happened to be in the right place at the right time for the end of the war. Yeah. Because um, this oh, battle takes place in March. In March, yeah, March 30th, 1918. So that was 101 years ago, just about. I don't know when you're going to release this, but let's let's pretend that. Uh, it's uh, March 29th. This excellent, is coming up. excellent. Yeah. That's good. That'll that, that'll work out nicely. Um, yeah. So, uh, one of the, the the sort of thoughts that we have um, that I, I know a lot of people I've talked to have had is the, the same sort of uh, mindset towards the end of the Second World War. Um, where in 1945 Germany was defeated, um, the Japan was defeated. They just didn't know it yet, kind yeah. of thing. Um, not so the case in the in the First World War. Um, oh yeah, that's not, not very a, different. Very situation. different uh, situation. You know, um, the, the the Germans had just won a, a victory in in October 1917 against the. Uh, um, the Italians, where they had essentially knocked their main offensive uh, forces out of the war um, and had also uh, essentially knocked the uh, Russian Empire out of the war. Now They're, they're going through their civil uh, war. It's going through the civil war, exactly. So with the October Revolution and the fact that the Russian Imperial Army was not, not doing well, they had some good officers, they had some good, uh, you know, armies and that kind of thing. They, they weren't a, a total write-off, but... They had lost spectacular battles uh, and spectacular amounts of men. Morale was was terrible, um, and so that that tells us two things. First off, when when they leave the war, that means the Germans don't have to fight on that front. But that also tells us that the the Germans who were involved in that front were experienced soldiers and many many divisions of soldiers and and used to victory, which is very important when it comes to how a uh, how a formed body of men goes. A formed body of men is used to defeat. Um, they're, you know, not as effective uh, in terms of their, their morale as one that, that is used to victory and knows how to seize victory and has shown the battle tactics, their equipment to have worked. So just having those guys come into the trenches on the Western it, Front must exactly. have done many many things exactly and the the allies or the entente as i'll probably refer to them as both because most people know them as the allies but yeah. the entente the british empire italy france and no longer the soviet union uh, as it was being formed but um and then the americans um were not in a great spot either in in uh, 1918 um British Empire was worn out. They still had imperial troops, the Canadians, the Anzacs, so that's the Australians and New Zealanders, Indian soldiers, that kind of thing, were, were still around, were still capable of fighting. Um, but a lot of the line trench units were worn out. Um, same thing with the French. Morale was very bad at the time. Um, Italians, as I say, had just lost a major battle in uh, 1917. Uh, and the Americans hadn't really shown up in significant numbers. Now, they were on the way. There was going to be a million men under arms before too long. But 
the big problem with with the Americans as they stood in March of, of 1918 was just the fact that they weren't experienced yeah. in the type of warfare that they were about to go into. You know, brave, ready, equipped, you know, no, no disparaging remarks to be made, but they just weren't the impossibly impossible to defeat force that they would be by the end of the war. Yeah. Didn't take them very long. It didn't take them very long. I mean, you know, there's the old adage that America fights every war it's ever fought with one hand tied behind its back. Uh, and so whenever you see, um, you know, America begin to mobilize, you know, out of nowhere, you get uh, patriotic, skilled, tough soldiers with good equipment and, and a willingness to fight, you know, uh, and a willingness to fight for something that's not just orders. It's not just conscripts who are off to you know, fight in the name of some distant, distant uh, monarch. Americans always want to fight for liberty in the American way. And so, you know, you got to hand it to them. The Americans, you know, may not have been the most, a superpower at the time, but they were poised to become one. Yeah. Uh, And especially considering they had no, no real standing peacetime army. Um, uh, Very, very small, not a lot of experience, but they got enough experience in the First World War to be ready for the second, um, you know, it's where Captain Patton learned tank tacti- tactics and that kind of thing. He incidentally had helped uh, design the cavalry saber for the uh, American uh, cavalry. I had which, no idea. Which they will stay to the end of the day. It was the finest cavalry saber, but I just, it doesn't surprise uh, me that he was a cavalry guy. Oh yeah, no, yeah, and then a real cavalry guy, yeah. like you know, uh, you know. Uh, Dash and, and daring and all that kind yeah. of thing, but in any case, um, so in March the uh, the Germans launch what's called uh, Operation Michael, okay, or the Spring Offensive, as as some people have, have known it to be, and using things innovative techniques like stormtroopers and poison gas and artillery spotting from aircraft and. A lot of the techniques they, they learned on the Eastern Front and, and that kind of thing, they launched this massive offensive along the entire front and started pushing the Entente and the Allies back. And how successful is this That's Michael cr- Offensive? Incredibly successful. Um, you know, for about 10 days, there was, there was no victory at all for the, for the Entente. And this, this massive offense it, it begins to slow down but there's still you know after about after about a week but there's still no major um, victories or defeats of, uh, over the over the German uh, German army do we know what the stated goal of the Michael offensive was was this like their push to end the war this or was, was their push this to was end theirs the war. Okay. yeah exactly this is this is general Ludendorff and and his plan like that Um and, you know, uh, likely the intermediate objective would have been something like Paris. Um, right. You know, um, there's, there's books that are about as thick as, as my wrist on, on Operation Michael um, and, and all the things they wanted to do. But, you know, if you're, if you're a German high command and you take out Paris and you can knock France out of the war, then essentially the British Empire has nowhere to fight anymore unless they're willing to invade France you know, on a, and take out everything and fight on their own, which probably would have would have been willing to do, especially with the Americans showing up. But in any case, um, and into this this sort of scene steps the uh, the Battle of Moray Wood uh, around the appropriately named town of Moray, which is on the rail line directly to Paris. Uh, 
Um, and so... I think with you saying that, I'm starting to understand some of the stakes of yes, this particular battle. Ex- exactly. And, uh, you know, uh, not to say that people were looking necessarily for a victory, but you need to... In order to stop an offensive like that, you have to take the um, initiative away from um, from the, the, the people who are doing the attack. Once once they can, uh, once they're acting with impunity, when you're on an, on an offense, and you can act without the enemy knowing where you're going to act, that's you know the initiative that you're, you're you have. So into the battle here steps the Canadian Cavalry Corps which was commanded by a, a general, a brigadier, um, Lord Seeley, who was a British man. The Canadian Cavalry Corps was primarily the Royal Canadian Dragoons, uh, a regiment that exists today out in Petawawa. Many friends of mine are uh, members of that regiment. Uh, the Fort Garry Horse, who are out of Winnipeg, and uh, have some friends who've served with them as well. Uh, Grant uh, was a subaltern with them back in the, in the 90s. Um, and then, of course, Lord Strathcona's horse. Um, and so on the morning of the 30th of, of March, um, 1918, uh, we have a character by the name of Lieutenant Flowerdew, who was uh, the uh, squadron commander of C Squadron. And C Squadron is, uh, you know, on the scene and ordered to go around the north part of the woods. Now, the woods had been occupied by the Germans and specifically a Saxon division that was there, 23rd, I believe. Um, and the Saxons, if you know, um, are like Bavarians, professional soldiers. Probably weren't many conscripts or people, you know, who didn't want to be there. Let's not use the word conscript, but those soldiers would have been people who were proud of their regiment and proud of their military tradition. So very good soldiers, um, and and a dangerous opponent to come up against. Um, while well, the dragoons and the Fort Garry horse began fighting in and around the woods, Flowerdew was ordered around the north part of the woods to count cut off any soldiers that uh, that may have been making their way out of the woods as well as to um, to look for a, a German defensive position that was sort of on the northeast part of the wood. Um, now before I go any further with that, Flowerdew is an interesting character and sort of worth a few moments of, of, of our time uh, to discuss. He was the later son of, a, of an English farmer, had probably some nobility in him. Um, wasn't going to inherit the farm, wasn't going to inherit the land or anything like that. So he moved to Canada, and he was out in BC as a as a rancher, um, and uh, was was a militia officer out there, in a local cavalry uh, group, and uh, was was cited in the newspaper and had become, become something of a local hero for chasing down some bank robbers on the back of back of a horse, you know, something like the, you'd expect in the Wild West. Um, <laughs> well, there's uh, there plenty of plenty of gold to be found out oh, well, there yeah, during exactly, that time. Exactly, lots of money and that yeah. kind of thing. So, and yeah. Lots of money in ranching, too. So yeah. when the war breaks out, he um, he decides that he wants to be, uh, uh, wants to join the Army. So he uh, applies to be an officer in the, in the, the, the British-Canadian, you know, uh, Army and they and the the recruiters say no you can't you can't be a militia officer isn't enough experience and there may have been you know don't quote me on it but there may have been a little bit of elitism involved in that too you know oh this, you don't say yeah you know, this this uh, 
son of a farmer in some backwater Canadian town. And it can't possibly be an officer. <laughs> Walsheen, BC. I do say. Uh, yes, indeed. Oh, Walsheen, Wal where's that? <laughs> but um, so he said, well, that's fine. I'll be a, I'll be a trooper then. I just want to get into the war. And uh, very quickly, he's appointed a lance corporal of his of his uh, of his cavalry group. And um, you know, someone very quickly realized that this man actually had quite a bit of uh, of leadership. So he ends up in Strathcona's horse, Lord Strathcona's horse. And um, you know, by 1915, is a lance sergeant, and then a sergeant. That rank doesn't exist anymore, no, does it? No, 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 no. Uh, you know, think of it as you know the uh, he's he's mostly the sergeant in charge of the corporals kind of things, right. but still a, a senior position, especially for so someone you know young and who hasn't spent a ton of time at uh, um, in battle. Uh, yeah. And then by 1917, he's a lieutenant. Uh, was it a battlefield commission? It would have been, yeah. um, owing mostly to the fact that he obviously was very, very well respected by his men. Um, and they we, were losing officers left and right. Well, that was yeah. That's the other thing. I mean, uh, you know, I wouldn't have the statistics on on losses in the in the cavalry and that kind of thing. But I, I would suspect that there's probably a. Uh, a lack of great officers that would have been uh, available yeah. uh, at the time, owing to you know attrition and and disease and everything else like that. So you know, uh, again, that's a don't quote me moment, but right. the supposition would be that would be that would be correct. I, th I would imagine. Um, in any case, um, owing to the fact that you know you you can look at the fact that um, we talked about Harvey last time. Lieutenant uh, Harvey, who won his Victoria Cross at uh, Guillancourt on the Battle of the Somme. He's the gentleman jumping over the uh, barbed wire fence um, in, uh, in my gallery there, taking out the, the German machine gun. And um, he was actually under Flower Dew, and he had been an officer prior to Flower Dew. Um, so, and there's no indication whatsoever that he had any problem with that. You know, he obviously thought that the right man was in charge. Right. Um, so, you know, our, our, my regiment's mo motto is uh, perseverance. And uh, so you can, you can look at, at Flower Dew and, you know, he persevered and got where he should have been in the end, but through competence and good work, hard work and leadership. And I mean... And he started in 1915 yeah, when we were over there, well, like yeah, when we first went over. Yeah, he started. Yeah, exactly. That's, you know, from the beginning. And he's there now. He's there now. On yeah. March 30th. Yeah, March 30th. And he is a squadron commander, which is not normally delegated to be to a lieutenant. That's, uh, you know, captain minimum, but, you know, major is where you, you usually want to be, at least, you know, especially these days. You know, my, my boss in, in, a, in a squadron is always major. Right. But, you know, that's who they had at the time. So he takes C Squadron, which has maybe 70 men, which is you know, well under what they should have as well. Maybe 70, maybe 80 men. We don't have the exact numbers um, as to, as to who, they, or who they should have had. Um, and they, uh, they come around the north, uh, northeast of the woods, and they run into this, uh, this Bavarian uh, division. And there's probably 250 to 300 Germans there. And they're dug in. And they have 20 MG-08 heavy machine guns, one of the finest in the entire war. 
And so Flowerdew at this point, who has dispatched Harvey and his troop, so they have probably less men at this point, yeah. into the woods to take out um, some German guns that are there and, and to join the fight in the woods. He's basically got a choice. He can either charge or he can withdraw. And if he withdraws, he'll come under fire anyway. Um, so he decides to seize the initiative and um, there's a, a famous quotation that he has. and It's a charge, boys. It's a charge. We don't know exactly when he said that. You know, we it would... People like to comment that it was as the, the, the battle was beginning, but it was probably before then as they were preparing to move into the position. And he, uh, he and his soldiers charged the, the, the German lines with their sabers. And meanwhile, Harvey's making his way through the woods and manages to take out the guns that are firing down on their, uh, the, his compatriots. Um, and he, he wins an MC for that. Um, so again, another heroic action. That's uh, a military cross. Yes. Military cross, yeah. yeah. Wins wins his MC for that. Um, but Flowerdew goes right through the German lines, and there's a funny story of one of the sergeants ending up on the far side of the German lines. I've heard this one. Yeah. And going, wait a minute, this is a really bad place to be, and so he turns around and he charges back through, and we we figure that him doing that confused the Germans and they thought they were being attacked from behind. Um, now, is that a, just a nice story that, that um, you know, gets added on after? Maybe. But nevertheless, you know, he ended up on the other side there. Yeah. There's another, another NCO who gets shot 40 times through the legs somewhere in that realm. Um, Flowerdew gets shot off his horse and gets shot multiple times, but refuses to sort of run away refuses to pull off the battlefield and just keeps uh, encouraging his soldiers forward and forward and forward. And they win. They actually win. And I honestly can't even picture it. You no, know, it's, it's incredible. Yeah. I mean, this is why this is such an important thing for my regiment. And so the, the Germans sort of retire is the word that, that we use. They didn't, they didn't retreat disorderly. They didn't all die or anything like that. But they retired from the battle. And what does that what does that exactly mean? Because we, I think in in the way that we as people imagine uh, battles ending, it's either like everyone's dead or everyone's run away. Yeah, not really. That's not really how it That's works. That's not how it would work. You'd run out of armies very quickly if that happened yeah. all the time. So they the, this this little group pulls out. This group of you know however many men pulls out and and withdraws from the battlefield. And so as a result, uh, the wood is not taken that day. Uh, not completely. They're still fighting in the wood. The Germans would come back through in the next couple of days. But they don't take the wood, and reinforcements come up. Um, 17th uh, Royal Lancers come up, a British cavalry regiment. There's a connection with with um, my regiment being allied with that one as a result of, of doing marrying up, as we call it, meeting up with them and being reinforced. Now, Flowerdew dies the next day, and he posthumously wins a VC, uh, inappropriately so, yeah, I would um, say. Just uh, for anybody who might not know, it's the Victoria Cross that we're talking about whenever we say VC. Yeah, the highest uh, medal for valor in the, in the Commonwealth. Yeah. 
Speaking of balaclava, as I did earlier, there that's the uh, that the the medals themselves are made from Russian cannons from the Battle of Balaclava. There, so there's a there's a connection from our my ramblings before. Um, you know, and we have a total of somewhere in the realm of of uh, 36 people died that day, somewhere in, in in that in those numbers. Huge casualties. More than 50 percent of of his squadron are are hurt or killed. Um, and I think it was 66 people in the Strathcona's die over the, the, the next couple of days in the, in the total battle because there was B Squadron and a couple other squadrons um, uh, of the RCD and of the, uh, of the Lord Strathcona's horse actually fighting in the woods. So it wasn't just Flower Dew's squadron in the, in the battle, but the charge was the main thing. Um, it, horrendous casualties in terms of, of the overall number of Strathcona's who were there. But as I say, they don't take the wood. That's right. And um, they they will a few days later. In fact, they do occupy the wood, but they don't advance beyond there. And what happens is essentially they they lose the initiative. They uh, the Germans no longer have the offensive initiative, and the Entente is able to counterattack and is able to hold their their offense, and then. You start getting things into the last hundred days and the and the, the many battles after this. Um, like the the last hundred days is essentially a full reversal. Yes, a full reversal of this this kind of thing. Um, and there there's uh, three historical figures. There's a Marshal Falk, who was the overall Allied commander for for part of the war and the high commander of the um, of the French armies. And there's uh, Lord Seeley himself, a very fine cavalry commander, well regarded for that brigadier, overall commander of the of the Canadian Cavalry Corps there. And then there's a Baron von Sell, who is a German and who was the um, chief of staff of their high command. And all three of these men, independently of each other, would say that Flowerdew's charge, that man, that officer's charge, won the war. And you know, you, you can debate endlessly about about that. I mean, obviously, that one charge wasn't the only thing that won the war. There were many, many catalysts. But the Germans could have gone much further with their with their offense. And That's the train line to Paris. Exactly, train line to Paris. And I mean, you're 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 not that far away from from Paris anyway to yeah. begin. Um, you know, my Ted McLeod, the old my old. Uh, uh, predecessor liked to say that the Germans could have won the war right there, but they didn't know it because they always thought that we were in better condition, that the, the the Entente was in better condition to fight, and so they were sort of surprised by their um, by their successes. Um, so these three gentlemen, and uh, you know, uh, there's a nice panel in my gallery if you want to look any any further on that, would say that that Flower Dew's charge won the war, and and that that has to speak for something. Um, you know, obviously the Americans were there, and we're going to keep showing up and that kind of stuff. So I mean, there was a foregone conclusion that the war was likely to end um, very, pardon me, soon. But the fact that three well-respected historical military figures would comment directly on Lieutenant Flowerdew VC and his actions really does speak to the severity of the actions and severity of and, and the accomplishments that um, 
that happened. I mean, this is not just another cavalry charge. And there were probably dozens more cavalry charges over the next next bit of the war. That This wasn't the last time that uh, that C Squadron charged, and it certainly wasn't the last time that Strathcona's charged. But, um, you know... He leaves an imprint. It, it, he leaves an indelible legacy yes. that, that this... That the regiment can't, you 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 have to you have to yeah. acknowledge it because these three, uh, the the thing that that really shocks me is the is how independent they are of each other. Yeah, I mean, like these are you know Baron von Sell, like that's a that's from a, the from the German side. From the German side, you right? Know? Um, we have a cavalryman who would look at things in a certain way. We yep. have um, our supreme ally, allied commander essentially yep. looking at it, and then we have our uh, like literal yeah, yeah. three different points three of view. Three different points of view, and they all, they all had the same conclusion. And and you know, I've got a number of my colleagues back at Edmonton who disagree vehemently on this point. And you know, I I will I will not say beyond a shadow of a doubt that yep, these actions definitely won the war because that's for, you know, there there you could make multiple PhD papers on this and go into incredible detail, which I will probably do someday. Ah. I would like to read it. Well, you know, <laughs> just stick around a little while longer. <laughs> All righty. We'll get there. But, you know, uh, it, there there was something there, and there was something very, very important. And Moray Wood, as a battle, is not something that is in the public consciousness. Um, you know, I, I go through and I give regular speeches in my gallery, and I say, hey, you know, this is this is my diorama. This is what happened, and people go, "Oh, I had no idea." People think they had they've had no idea about uh, we still used horses and cavalry and that kind of thing. And you know, it was a hundredth anniversary last year. You know, we had a big to do, and the regiment sent uh, people to to Morai. They uh, they paraded through the city. They did a, um, a cavalry charge, that kind of thing. Um, you know, the, the remembrance was there. We we uh, we saw Morai would. Its anniversary with the proper amount of respect that that we needed to. This is something that Canadians can be very proud of. You know, we did these things. You know, uh, farm boys from the from all over the country did these things, and we did these things. And and look at what it it wasn't in vain, and it wasn't um, wasn't vain glorious. It wasn't someone's idea of of fame and fortune. It was a bunch of soldiers going and doing what they had to do in order to win. And you know what? That's pretty good. Thank you again for listening to the Military Museums podcast. If you like what you heard, please feel free to subscribe to us on iTunes, leave us a five-star review, and of course you can also listen to us on Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your ear content. Now if you have a comment or question, as always, you can email the show at themilitarymuseumspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time.